This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our time in God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord and ask his guidance on our study. Our Father, we are reminded as we begin to study your word that all of what we are studying proceeds from you, that under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, the writers of Scripture in the Old Testament and New uh, wrote in such a way that they were guaranteed and protected from writing error, and that they wrote, although many hundreds of years apart, they wrote in unison. The Old Testament predicting the Messiah who would come the New Testament revealing his coming and then teaching and instructing those who would follow him on what is required of those who truly wish to follow him and are truly dedicated in terms of being disciples. Father, as we study today, we pray that our eyes might be open to the spiritual truths of the passages we're studying and that we might be responsive to the challenge that God the Holy Spirit brings into each of our lives uh, to walk more consistently by the Holy Spirit and to be more consistent followers of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. We're moving beyond the Sermon on the Mount, which we finished a couple of weeks ago. And last week, of course, uh, Jim Myers was here, so we're moving into the next lesson and this is one of those uh, overview lessons uh, covering two chapters, chapters 8 and 9, because they fit together as a whole. And there are a lot of different details that are given in these passages. And Matthew, in fact, records 10 miracles. It's interesting how he organizes it, and I think it's important to fly over and look at the organization because there's an emphasis in his structure. There's a doctrinal challenge for each of us in the way he structures this. It's not just a matter of each individual episode and what we might learn from that, but it is how he, under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, organizes this in order to present his case, which in, on, on the surface is to establish the credentials through the works of Jesus that he was indeed the promised and prophesied Messiah as described in the Old Testament. But there is an implicit challenge in that to each and every person who wishes to be a follower or a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just by way of review, let's think our way through the structure of the Gospel of Matthew. 
In the first two chapters, we have recorded the legal qualifications in terms of his uh, genealogy and his birth. He is legally qualified to be Messiah. He's born uh, through virgin conception and virgin birth. Thus, he fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 7.14. In Matthew chapters 3 and 4, are described the baptism, the inauguration of his ministry, as well as his character as he passes the temptations uh, from uh, the devil in the wilderness. He be- there begin- after that he began his ministry, and like his, like the forerunner, his predecessor John the Baptist, he is proclaiming the nearness of the kingdom. Now this is crucial for understanding. Everything in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is telling us why Jesus Christ is the king, and he's emphasizing this message of the kingdom. Remember, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, a, an audience of Jewish background Christians somewhere around uh, 50 A.D., and he is answering and reaffirming for them uh, the answer to questions related to the me- messianic credentials of Jesus of Nazareth. By that time, persecution had developed to some degree in uh, Judah and in Galilee, in Judea and Galilee, and so he is addressing their questions, uh, giving them greater confidence that, yes, even though the kingdom has not come in and has been postponed, Jesus was the promised Messiah. So he's reaffirming that, and he's going back, and he's giving us uh, evidence of Jesus' uh, Messiahship. He's emphasizing the words of Jesus as the Messiah in Matthew 5 through 7, where the Messiah instructed his disciples on the righteous character that would be required on the part of Israel for the kingdom to come in. And it is his teaching there and his emphasis on experiential righteousness that we saw that authenticates him as the Messiah. Now we come to Matthew chapters 8 and 9, and he is going to give us evidence through the works of the Messiah, through his miracles, that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. Now when we look at this, we must understand that Jesus is, I mean, excuse me, Matthew is presenting Jesus as the Messiah in terms of these works. There are ten miracles that are given in this section. They are not given in chronological order. If you were to be reading Matthew side by side with Luke, you would see that in Luke you have all of these same miracles, or most of them, but they're in much different art. Order. Some of them might even come before the Sermon on the Mount. Some came later. And it, it, Matthew is not organizing his material chronologically. He's organizing his material uh, didactically. He is presenting a case for Jesus as the Messiah. So what he is doing, this is very different from our Western mindset. I went over this in the introduction, that we are not to look at these as biographies uh, in this, in a modern sense, they are evangelistic tracts. They are designed to communicate a specific point in relation to who Jesus was. And for Matthew, Jesus is the King of the Jews. Jesus is the promised Messiah. And so he is looking at all of the data in, in the life of the Messiah, and he is picking the evidence to support his thesis that Jesus is the Messiah. And so he selects from these various events which occurred in the 
Galilean ministry of our Lord. When we look at the general structure uh, of the Lord's life, we have his birth. We have a blank spot from his infancy to the time that he appears before John the Baptist in his public presentation. He appears to John the Baptist down on uh, the Jordan River, not far from Jericho where he is baptized. Then he goes to Jerusalem. We know this from John chapter, uh, uh, he went to, first, excuse me, first he went up to Cana of Galilee. Then he went to Jerusalem. We know this from John 2 and John 3. In Jerusalem he met with, with Nicodemus. Some opposition began at that time and he went to, north to, uh, Galilee. And then we have his Galilean ministry. Uh, which is summarized here uh, to some degree in Matthew 8 and 9. A couple of things that we ought to point out here, is, as we'll see in the structure here, is there is a, the beginning of and an increase in opposition towards Jesus from the religious leaders. Uh, pay attention to that as we go through Matthew. A, a second thing that we see that is a major theme in Matthew is the role of the disciples the role of being a disciple. Matthew is the only gospel of the uh, of the four that records the Great Commission in terms of uh, making disciples. Go, therefore, Jesus said, uh, baptizing and making disciples, teaching everyone to obey all that I commanded. There's this emphasis that we are all to be disciples. Now, disciple is one of those religious words that, uh, people often uh, have misused or abused or used so frequently that it loses its meaning. It is basically describing someone who is a student of a teacher who is following and implementing their instruction in their lives. And so a, the term disciple is not a, a synonym for a believer, but the term disciple describes a certain kind of believer who has decided that he is going to uh, follow the Lord Jesus Christ uh, with every ounce of his being. He isn't going to be satisfied with just going to heaven as his eternal destiny. He wants to grow and mature spiritually in this life. And so in the Gospel of Matthew, there is this emphasis on discipleship. There is an emphasis on Jesus' training of the disciples so that they in turn can multiply themselves as they go out and teach others eventually with the beginning of the of the uh, church age. And so this is important for us because as we look at Matthew chapter 8 and 9, there is a, a, a general structure here that is important uh, important to follow. In Matthew chapter 8, we begin with four miracles. These are covered in verses 1 through 17. So you have four miracles and then an interlude that focuses on the cost or the responsibilities of discipleship. And there are two examples given at that point. Then we come back to uh, more miracles. This time they are the first group of four were miracles of healing. Then the uh, two instances related to discipleship are given in verses 18 to 22. And then in verses 23 uh, and following, we have uh, three miracles given showing uh, Jesus' power over creation, his power over creation. So these are miracles 
of power. You have his his miracle of stilling the storm in verses 23 to 27, his power over the demons in verses 28 to 34, and then his power over disease and ability to forgive sins in uh, Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. Then we have a shift back to discipleship. We have the call of Matthew in Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 uh, through 13, and there is a, a, a the increase of opposition there, and so d- there's an indication there. And then Jesus is questioned about fasting by the disciples of John. So you have, again, two illustrations related to discipleship. And then starting in verse 18, we have uh, the miracles, two miracles that are intertwined, so it's usually viewed as one example, even though there's two instances of healing, they're interconnected. Both relate to restoration. The last group of three uh, miracles here relate to miracles of restoration. These both relate to restored life. And then the um, we have the second uh, uh, in this group, the two blind men that are healed, the restoration of sight. And then last, our tenth miracle, the restoration of speech for the um, uh, the mute man in verses 32 through 34. And then we have a closing summary. Now, sometimes you've heard me say it's important to begin with the end in mind. I've often found in reading, especially more technical things, that it's helpful to go to the end and see what the writer's conclusion is so I can understand the parts and components of what comes before because any good writer is going to be driving toward a specific a specific conclusion. And so we see at the end here uh, a conclusion or summary that Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing. That's something of a summary going back to Matthew uh, chapter uh, 4, verse 23. He's teaching, he's preaching, and he's healing. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, So what we see here, let me remind you, this is important to understand. Why is this in Scripture? What does Matthew expect of us? What does God expect of us when we read this? We have a group of four miracles of healing. We have two instances related to discipleship. We have a group of three miracles related to power over creation and forgiveness of sin. And then we have Two more illustrations related to discipleship, followed by uh, the last set of three miracles related to restoration. Why does Matthew put these two groups of these two groups of two illustrations of discipleship in the middle of these this list of, of miracles? He did that for a reason. Now, when we come to the end, the summary, it'll help us to understand the reason. What Matthew is basically saying is the power and authority of Jesus demands a response from us to submit to that authority and to follow him as a disciple. This is what's brought out in the last two verses, verses 37 and 38 of chapter 9. Then Jesus said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. 
See, the laborers are disciples, not just the 12 disciples, but any who will step to the plate and respond to the challenge of being a genuine disciple of Jesus Christ. Therefore, he says, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And those laborers are those who are genuine disciples. Those who are genuine disciples are those who respond to the implicit uh, challenge of Jesus' authority to commit themselves fully to being an obedient disciple to Jesus as seen in those uh, two groups of two illustrations. So that's how these things connect together. Okay, that's our first flyover. I want to do another flyover with a little more detail, and I want to orient us geographically as we look at the works of the Messiah in Matthew chapters 8 and 9. Okay, in this map, we're looking at the northern part of Israel, basically all of the Galilee, although in the, in the lower part, in the south, you have the northern part of Samaria. Up here, you have all of Galilee. Up here, over here to the left is the uh, Mediterranean. We have uh, Phoenicia here on the coast. Uh, down below here, we have this uh, interesting little sort of a loop in the coastland here. This is where the modern city of Haifa is located. Uh, this is the um, uh, Kishon River here, uh, Mount Carmel Ridge here. And so we go to the north uh, east of the valley of uh, Megiddo or the Esdralon Valley, and we find the Sea of Galilee. It's really not a sea. That's a mist translation of the Greek thalasso, which can mean either a sea or a lake. Sea is salt water, lake is fresh water. This is Lake Kinnereth or Ginnesar, uh, depending on, uh, there's two or three different ways in which it's, it's pronounced, depending on whether it's Hebrew, Aramaic, uh, or, or English. So this is the Sea of God. This is the center of Jesus' ministry. Uh, this is a, a blow-up of that particular area. And there are various areas we should be aware of here. Most importantly is the uh, village, the fishing village of Capernaum, Capernaum, which is often thought to be the original village or home of Nahum, the prophet uh, in the Old Testament. This is the home of Peter and his brother Andrew. Uh, Peter is married he, because we have reference to his mother-in-law in this uh, in this passage, this is where Jesus has moved to and the center of his uh, operations and ministry in Galilee. Uh, from what we see in this passage, he doesn't actually own a home, but he lives there. Either somebody's provided a, a residence for him or he's staying with Peter or Andrew. We're not really sure. The scriptures never make that clear. But this is Jesus' home in, in Capernaum. Uh, and he will, in, in this section, he goes across at one point to Bethsaida. He will go down to uh, Ger, Ger, uh, where the Gergesenes are in the region of Gadara for the casting out of the demons from these uh, two men that appear. So this gives us a basic orientation in terms of uh, modern, uh, modern events, the area to the west, excuse me, to the east of the Sea of Galilee is the Golan Heights. And this is an area that is well elevated. Uh, Israel took that from the, uh, from the Syrians in the uh, uh, 67 war, and so this has been part of, of uh, Israel uh, ever, ever since. Okay, that gives us a geography. This is sort of what it looks like. 
This is the modern area of Capernaum where they have uh, done a lot of archaeological uh, uh, exploration and excavation. The rise behind it is thought to be the traditional site of the Sermon on the Mount. We really don't know exactly where it was, but this is the traditional site, and they have a church over here in this grove of trees which uh, commemorates that location. Here is an artist's rendering of what the fishing village would have looked like at the time of Christ, and you have two or three docks that are going out into the water, uh, the various uh, homes of the uh, people who lived there. This would represent the synagogue, and there's a very nice uh, ruin of the synagogue that was built on top of the uh, original synagogue where Jesus was. There was a second-century synagogue that was built there that's uh, great to go to. This is another artist's conception of what Capernaum would have looked like in the first century based on archaeological discoveries. Now, when we come to this section... As I pointed out in the conclusion, Jesus is going about uh, Galilee teaching and preaching and uh, healing people. This is indicated in Matthew chapter 4 as Jesus began his ministry. We have a summary statement given, and then we have a summary statement given at the end of chapter 9. It's formed sort of a bookend, ends, and in between we have the three chapters of the Sermon on the Mount, and then these two chapters with the miracles of Jesus. Matthew 4.17, from the time Jesus returned from the uh, wilderness, from the desert and, and the temptations, we read from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The emphasis is on the nearness of the kingdom. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. His teaching, preaching, and healing ministry is directly related to establishing his credentials as the Messiah as he is announcing the nearness of the king. Because the king is here, the kingdom is near. That's basically what Jesus is saying. Now, the three words that are used here, didasco indicates instruction, and prescriptions for conduct. So Jesus is giving instruction in the synagogues. He's preaching the gospel, also identified in this section as the gospel of the kingdom, which isn't the same gospel that we're preaching. The gospel of the kingdom is that the kingdom is near, repent, change, conform to the law, and God will bring in the kingdom. Uh, so this is a proclamation Preaching, technically, in the Scripture is simply a proclamation of a truth. It's not instruction, and it's not what we often call in our culture preaching, which is more like exhortation. Uh, we abuse the term preaching too often. Uh, Therapeuo is the word meaning to cure or to, or to heal. Now, in order to catch the drift here, it's important to understand a little background, and one verse for this is in uh, Matthew 11. Uh, verses 2 through 4, when John the Baptist has heard about Jesus, even John, who is Jesus' cousin, remember, is a little uh, confused about what Jesus is doing. And in Matthew eleven two through 4, John hears about the works of Jesus. Uh, the, that's an emphasis about these miracles. And he says, are you the coming one, or do we look for another? 
He recognizes that the miracles that are taking place in Jesus' ministry are designed to authenticate his claim to be the Messiah. And this is how Jesus answers. He says, go and tell John the things which you see and hear. What the, the, the miracles that Jesus was performing are miracles that, that authenticated his claim to be Messiah. And then he lists them. In verse 5, he says, The blind see and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel proclaimed to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. So Jesus' answer to John is, is really taking John back to the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophesied a Messiah who would demonstrate certain things in his life. Isaiah 35, 4 through 6, we read, Say to those who are fearful-hearted, be strong. Do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. This would talk about physical deliverance. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. The, then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing, for water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Then in Isaiah 61.1, we read, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. This is the servant of Jehovah, the servant of Yahweh, rather speaking. He is the one who is um, the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to proclaim good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of prison to those who are bound. And so the point that Jesus is making to John the Baptist is you look at my works and you will see that I conform to everything that the prophets uh, prophesied in the Old Testament related to, uh, to the Messiah. In contrast, the negative volition of the Pharisees described in Matthew 12, 24 through 28, where they basically say that Jesus is performing his miracles under the power of Beelzebub. This is an alternate name for Satan, the ruler of the demons. And Jesus responds to that, that if, in verse 26, if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Verse 27, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Verse 28, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. That means that because I, the king, am here, the kingdom is near, and it's, it, it is close in proximity if you will simply conform to, uh, conform to the law, respond to the grace of God, and accept um, God's grace for salvation, for imputed righteousness, and accept me as the Messiah, li- and then live in terms of uh, positional right, our experiential righteousness. Okay, having said that, let's go on and look at um, the basic structure here as we go through an, an overview. The first four miracles are miracles of healing. They're covered in Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. These are miracles of healing. Now, when we look at this, again, we ought to go to the summary verse at the end. And there, uh, Matthew quotes from Isaiah 53, verse 4. 
And he says that it might be fulfilled what was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Matthew is telling us that I've given you these four examples of the kind of healing miracles that Jesus performed, and it fits the pattern prophesied in the Old Testament. So the first miracle is a miracle related to healing a leper. There were two types of miracles that the uh, rabbis believed would be the, uh, the on, that only the Messiah could perform. One was the healing of a leper. The other is the healing uh, uh, or the restoration of sight to a blind man. No one but the Messiah could perform those two kinds uh, of miracle. Uh, two things are evident in this um, or a couple of things are evident in this passage. The leper comes to Jesus, and he's worshiping him. Now, under the Levitical uh, law related to lepers, and, and we'll get into this in more detail when we study this section, but leprosy in the Bible is not particularly the identical to Hansen's disease, which is thought of as modern leprosy. Modern leprosy may be a subset of what the Bible talked about in terms of leprosy as a whole, but what the Bible describes as leprosy would also include mold and mildew in, in, on walls or on clothing or something of that nature. So it's a fairly broad term. Anyone who was a leper had to be cleansed, but there is no, because it was viewed as being unclean, but there is no process given in the, in the Levitical law for the cleansing and the healing of a leper. Because once you had leprosy, you could, you, there was no reversal of that. And so a leper was to be kept completely apart from everybody else, and no one could touch a leper. If you did, then you would have to be isolated to make sure you did not contract the disease, and if you did, then you were excluded from the community. And we'll notice that what Jesus does is he puts out his hand and he touches the leper. Jesus does not become unclean by touching the leper, but rather the leper becomes clean by having been touched by Jesus. So the leper comes, and note, the leper knows who Jesus is, understands that Jesus can uh, heal him, and the leper comes and he bows down to worship Jesus, and he says, if you will, he doesn't have presumption, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus says, I'm willing, be cleansed, and immediately his lep leprosy was cleansed. The three times the word cleansed is used there, which emphasize this. Then Jesus says, don't tell anyone. Now, why in the world would Jesus say, don't tell anyone? Well, we have to read the rest of it. He says, don't tell anyone, but go your way and go to the priest. This was what was required by the Mosaic law. So Jesus deliberately sends the cleansed leper to the priesthood uh, to show, first of all, that he's obedient to the law, and secondly, because then the priests have to confirm the cleansing of the leper. They have to investigate, was he truly a leper? Once they came to that conclusion, then they would be forced to identify the fact that the, this leper has been completely cleansed of leprosy. This has never happened before. So therefore, who cleansed you? Who healed you? Who did this? It was Jesus of Nazareth. Therefore, they would be forced to acknowledge that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the Messiah. So Jesus, by sending him to the priesthood, is in effect... Uh, 
establishing a strategy where the priest would have to authenticate his messianic claim and his healing of the Messiah. The second miracle moves from a Jewish context, because this is a Jewish leper, to a Gentile context, a centurion who's a Roman officer who would be in command of a hundred. There are several centurions mentioned in Scripture. They're all mentioned positively. Uh, he is a Gentile, and he comes to uh, Jesus in Capernaum, and he pleads with Jesus that his servant, uh, who would be a young man, is uh, paralyzed, he is at home, he is in considerable pain, and uh, he's pleading with Jesus to heal him. But he says that, um, uh, he says, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. This is a sign of humility. It's a sign of a recognition that a Jew could not come into the home of, uh, of a Gentile uh, without becoming defiled, so he doesn't want Jesus to come into his home. But it's also a recognition of authority. The centurion himself is a man who recognizes a chain of command and recognizes authority, and he knows that Jesus is at the top of the chain of command and that he doesn't have to actually come into the home in order to heal his servant. He can just give an order, and it will be accomplished without Jesus being there. Jesus marvels at this. Uh, this is in his humanity, and he says in verse 10, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. So here we see a contrast uh, to Israel. Israel is not responding to him as the Gentile centurion has. And so Jesus concludes, he says, I say to you that many will come from east and west. We saw that from our reading in Isaiah 49, 1 through 13. Many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. This idea of sitting down is really the word meaning to recline, and it indicates a banquet. And the fact that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are mentioned emphasizes the Jewish nature of that banquet in relation to the kingdom. And then Jesus says, but the sons of the kingdom, and in this context, this phrase, sons of kingdom, kingdom would indicate those who lack faith in Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, we'll get into the details of this, this verse 12, because this is a uh, problem passage for some because of uh, various issues related to other uses of it, uh, the term outer darkness and weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And this term is taken by some to mean uh, almost a Christian purgatory. They're not only excluded from the future millennial kingdom, but they're put in a place of torments and a place of punishment for a thousand years. I completely reject that as a heretical view. Uh, there are others who take this to simply be a metaphor for uh, those who will be ashamed at the judgment seat of Christ, which is clear from other passages, and so they are excluded from some of the millennial blessings. And then I believe, though, that in this context, in each of these passages, these are not technical terms, each of these passages must be taken in context. And here I believe that the sons of the kingdom... Uh, is a reference to those who have a proper uh, expectation of the kingdom, that is, Jews, but they are not responsive to the gospel message, and so they are, they are removed. Jesus says to the centurion, Go your way as you have believed, so let it be done, and his servants healed at that same hour. So what we see is the lepers immediately healed, uh, the servant of the centurion is immediately healed. This isn't some process. When Jesus heals, it's, it's immediate. 
Then the third example is that Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law, who has some uh, debilitating fever some uh, as a result of disease, and Jesus goes into the house, touches her hand, and the fever leaves her. Uh, Peter's mother-in-law probably lived with Peter and his wife there in Capernaum. And then the last example in this first grouping is just a general statement that when evening came, that would be at the end of the of the day, at the end of the Sabbath, that many people brought to him, uh, many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with just a word, a command, and healed all who were sick. reason for this is it is evidence of his messianic credentials uh, according to the prophecy of Isaiah 53, 4, and 5. Notice in Isaiah 53, 4, in Isaiah, as in several passages in the Old Testament, there's this uh, connection of disease with sin. Now, this is not the, view, the popular view at that time, which was if you were sick, it was because you committed a certain sin. The scriptural view is that we have illness in the world because there is sin as a, as a, as a total concept in the world. Because of the fall of Adam, sin has entered into the universe. I mean, because of the fall of Adam, disease has entered into the universe. So that's where the connection is. Because Jesus uh, will solve the sin problem, he is also going to be able to solve the problem of disease. And so we see this connection many times. Isaiah 53, 4 talks about, uh, surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But notice the parallel in verse 5 shows that he's not just talking about physical, uh, physical pain or physical disease, but the ultimate cause, which is sin in the world. He was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And so we see this connection. Now in the next section, the emphasis is on the cost of discipleship. Two examples are given. The first is of a certain scribe. Actually, it's not a specific scribe. It's just one scribe. There are several scribes who are there. Scribes were those who were responsible for copying the law. And this one scribe comes out as Jesus is about to depart in the boat to cross the Sea of Galilee, and he wants to go with him. And he comes up and says, Teacher, I want to go with you. I'll follow you wherever you're going. And Jesus knows that uh, he's not fully committed. And so he says, uh, Foxes have, have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Uh, and he recognizes that a core problem for many who wish to follow Jesus is that they are too attached to different uh, details of life that give them security in this life. And we have to be willing to give up uh, any attachment to the things of this world, the details of life, if we are going to be a true or genuine uh, disciple of Jesus. So we have to have... Uh, a total commitment to follow him, being willing to sacrifice anything. Now, this isn't a strange concept. If you think back to the events of July 4th, 1776, when the founders of the United States of America signed the Declaration of Independence, they closed in the last line of the Declaration of Independence with these words. And for the support of this declaration with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, 
we mutually pledge to each other, that is, those who are the signatories of the Declaration, we pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And there were many who lost their fortunes. There were a few that gave up their lives or their health uh, during the War for Independence, and they were willing to give up everything, even to the point of losing their lives for the sake of political and civil liberty from Britain. If, and many of us honor them because of that. We remember them because of their dedication. We have what we have. Now, here's my argument. If we, are, if we honor them for that, and in our good moments, we think that we would be willing to commit to the same thing, that is nothing compared to what the Lord Jesus Christ is asking. He is saying the same kind of thing, that if you really are committed to the, uh, to the Lord of the universe and you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, then you have to be willing to potentially give up everything, your comfort, your security zone, everything that you look to in this life as a basis for happiness. If you're not willing to follow Jesus in that way, then you have an incomplete obedience and you're not really focused on the task at hand, which is what's required of any who is going to be a true disciple. Jesus is like the United States Marine Corps. He's not looking for everyone. He's just looking for a few good men and women to follow him. And that's what he's looking for. So that's the challenge. That challenge is articulated again in the next example uh, when he he presents another who comes to him and says, well, wait a minute, let me go take care of some family responsibilities first. That's what he means when he says, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus says, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Jesus is recognizing it's an incomplete commitment. And Jesus says the kingdom, the kingdom message and the kingdom program is so important. It overrides all other, all other priorities. Then we came to come to the next group where Jesus goes out on the boat with his disciples and a huge storm comes up, which is still possible on the Sea of Galilee. It's a rather shallow lake overall, and therefore there can be great storms. And uh, this uh, storm, this tempest came up, and it scares the, scares the fire out of the disciples. And remember, James and John, Peter and Andrew are fishermen. They've been out on the Sea of Galilee their whole lives. And so they are used to this. This was a greater storm than they would normally experience. And so they're afraid the whole time Jesus is in the back of the boat sound asleep. He is thoroughly relaxed. They wake him up and he uh, rebukes them for not having enough faith. It is not faith towards salvation. It is faith towards the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of the details of life. It's related to the, if you're going to be a disciple, then you have to be willing to trust the Lord to take care of the details in, in your life. And so he rebukes the winds and the seas, much like he would rebuke the demons in the next example, and there's great calm immediately. It doesn't take a while for the waves to die down. It's immediate, and the men are astounded and say, who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now, what we see in, in, uh, in verse 26 is Jesus says, you men of little faith, that's emphasizing the men is not there in, uh, 
the text, the New King James, but it's there in the original, you men of little faith, and that emphasizes their humanity. Their, they represent mankind. And then when they say, in some translations, is who can this man be? There's no man in verse 27. It's who is this? And that even the wind and the seas obey him. So he has power over creation. The next example, he has power over the demon-possessed. This is when he casts uh, demons out of these two demon-possessed men. They go into the herd of swine. The first shows that Jesus has power over creation, and when the kingdom comes in that he is promising, it will be a time of he will solve the environmental problem. He will solve the problem of global warming and global cooling and the problems of storms and droughts and everything else because he is the God over creation. And the second example is showing a foretaste of the kingdom, a preview of coming attractions, that he will be have exercise his authority over the demons and over Satan, and they will be excluded from the kingdom. In the third example, he heals a paralytic, and the scribes challenge him. This is the beginning of opposition. They challenge him. They say, well, how in the world can you forgive him? Only God can forgive him. This is blasphemy for you to say that you can forgive sins. And Jesus says, well, what's easier, to tell a man to get up and walk or to say your sins are forgiven? Well, any of us can easily say to somebody, your sins are forgiven, and 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 who, who's to know whether they are or not? But to say to somebody, uh, stand up, take, take your pallet and walk, well, that indicates a greater, a greater power. So Jesus then told the man to stand up and take his bed and to leave the house, and he did. And the crowds uh, marveled, glorified God, and word began to spread about his power. That's the second thing, second set of miracles, his power uh, over creation, his power over uh, the storms, his power over the demons, and his uh, power over disease to exemplify his ability to forgive sins, that in the kingdom sins would be forgiven. Then we have another, our second interlude related to uh, disciples, his call of Matthew, the tax collector, who was considered to be uh, the lowest form of uh, traitor to Israel because he was serving the Roman Empire. He calls Matthew. Matthew then takes him to his house, has a big party for all the other tax collectors and sinners, and so the Pharisees and the scribes wouldn't be caught dead there. But since Jesus is there, they they show up and they challenge him. Why is he associating with tax collectors and sinners, something they would never do? And so the emphasis is made there that Jesus challenges them with Hosea uh, Hosea 6, saying that um, uh, they need to understand the true nature of mercy and sacrifice, the true nature of mercy and sacrifice, and that uh, it is not superficial. Hosea 6, 6 says, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Uh, then we have another question coming from John's disciples. Why do your disciples eat and drink and have a party? And our, uh, John's disciples fasted. And Jesus brings out the point that he is the bridegroom, and while the bridegroom is present, people will have a feast. But when the bridegroom leaves and departs, indicating that he will be rejected eventually, uh, then, then they, his followers will fast and mourn. Then we come to the last three, 
the last set of three. The first is actually two linked together. There's the woman who has this uh, problem for 12 years. She's been hemorrhaging, and uh, so she is unclean for these 12 years. And she sees Jesus in the crowd, and she reaches out to touch the hem of his garment. It's an act of worship. She's not necessarily expecting, uh, or she is expecting to be healed. She says, if only I can touch his garment, I shall be made well. Verse 22, Jesus uh, just knows that power has gone out from him, and he turns and says, be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Now, in the Old Testament, in Leviticus, we're told that uh, the life of the flesh is in the blood. So the fact that she is uh, hemorrhaging, the fact that she is bleeding continuously indicates a lack of life. And so the healing is to indicate Jesus has power over life. That's why this is interconnected with his restoration of the uh, ruler of the synagogue. We know from the parallel in Luke that this is Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue there in Capernaum. His daughter has died, and Jesus will restore her to life. And so both of these uh, instances indicate that Jesus has power to restore life. Then in the next example, in verses uh, 27 uh, to 31, he gives sight to two blind men. Now, previously, when Jesus had addressed the, um, uh, addressed the demons, they referred to him as, as the Son of God. And prior to that, Jesus had referred to himself as the Son of Man. And here Jesus refers to himself as the Son of David. And so three key titles that are all messianic in their implication are used in this section, again, re-emphasizing the fact of Jesus' uh, legitimacy to, legitimate claim, rather, uh, to be the Messiah. Now he gives sight to the two blind men, and again, in rabbinical thought, only the Messiah could give sight to those who are blind. But what we see here again is even increased opposition that develops uh, from the from the Pharisees, as seen in the third example, when uh, a mute man he's mute he can is unable to speak because of demon possession. Jesus cast out the demon, and the multitudes again marvel at this. They are astounded by what what Jesus is doing. But the Pharisees now say. Uh, he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. This will be their ultimate uh, rationale that we'll see in Matthew chapter 12 for why they reject de- Jesus. All these miracles, they say, he didn't do it. He did it by the power of the ruler of demons, which is seen as, as Satan. And so this gives us the structure. Jesus is showing who he is by the miracles. I, our Lord has incredible power. As we observe this, knowing that these, these examples are as real today as they were when Jesus, Jesus performed them, that the same implicit challenge is present for us as it was for the disciples of his day. He is who he claimed to be. He's the Lord of the universe. He has a right and a claim to our allegiance, to our obedience, and to our uh, complete and total devotion. He is calling us not just to faith in him for eternal life, but to follow him 
with every ounce of our being and to be completely dedicated uh, to him. This is the thrust of this final challenge. He says that there, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The challenge is, are you and I willing to be counted among the laborers, to be fully dedicated to Jesus, to be focused upon the mission which is to proclaim the gospel, to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ, and to live our lives where we pursue spiritual maturity and become witnesses uh, to the grace of God to both the angels and to mankind. And as part of that, we need to be involved in ministry. Verse 38, Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. To be sent out as a laborer means you have to be trained as a laborer. What a great lead-in for the DM2 conference coming up. It's almost like there was a plan. That's the challenge. We have to be trained. And so we have a great vehicle coming up for that training. But the challenge is, are we willing? Is it, is it just words that we want to follow Jesus? Are we truly willing to put everything on the line for Jesus? Are we w- really willing to pledge our, our life our possessions, our honor, everything for the sake of obedience to Jesus Christ and following him. That's the challenge with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to uh, go through this section to look at the, the, the total picture here in these two chapters as Matthew presents this under the under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to present this challenge to us that is implicit in these, in these events, that we are to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ, that we are to follow him, that we are to be willing to put everything on the line for him, not to look back, but to focus completely on the mission that he has given us uh, to make disciples, to be uh, workers in the harvest, to be laborers, to be those who are willing to be involved in the process of building the body of Christ. And that, that we do this not out of a sense of works, but as a sense of who Jesus Christ is, what he has done for us, and, and the mission of the church in this church age. Father, we pray that you would uh, help us to respond to this challenge. Uh, This is a challenge meant for believers, but perhaps someone is listening who is not a believer, who's never trusted in Christ as Savior. The issue for you is different. The issue is to trust in Christ for your Savior. Uh, Salvation is not by works. It's not by obedience. Salvation is based upon accepting a free gift, the free gift that Jesus Christ provided by dying on the cross for our sins. He did the work for our salvation All we have to do is accept it. That's the most important decision we can make. The second most important decision we can make is one that we make every single day. Are we willing to follow him? Are we willing to focus upon the mission? Are we willing to be trained to be laborers under the harvest? Are we willing to put everything on the line for our spiritual growth and for our service to the Lord and Savior who bought us, who paid a price, so that we are actually his. We are to be bondservants of righteousness, and this is our responsibility. And, Father, we pray that we might be worthy of this challenge. In Christ's name, amen.